Welcome to the jointly sponsored session by the Theology and Religious Reflection section and the Theology and Continental Philosophy Group, uh, a discussion of Judith Butler's Parting Ways, uh, Jewishness and the Critique of Zionism. You will find on the panel a wide diversity of perspectives about this book. I am going to introduce them in, or in the order in which they're going to be speaking and then they will proceed to speak approximately 10 to 15 minutes each uh, in, in, that, in that order. We will first um, hear from Claire Katz uh, of Texas A&M University, then Sam Brody of the University of Cincinnati, Yaniv Feller of the University of Toronto, Mark Lewis, of the Princeton Theological Seminary and Martin Kafka of Lehigh University. If your program and that panel don't mesh, unfortunately, it is because Saba Mahmoud, who had originally intended to join us, uh, was only able to send her regrets. Responding, that not Saba Mahmoud at the end, but in fact, Judith Butler, uh, will be responding to these papers. We want to welcome her back as a frequent honored guest to the AAR. Perhaps at some point she'll even join us for some reason. Um, Judith Butler is the Maxine Elliott Professor in the Department of Rhetoric and Comparative Literature at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, she's the author of many books, but one in particular that changed the world in which I live, that is Gender Trouble. And for me, my understanding of parting ways is that that signifies that Judith is still uh, has a continued interest in trouble <laughs> and wrote this book what, at, at a great personal risk. I think it offers us a new way of approaching the conflict in Israel-Palestine. And having myself read these papers, uh, I want to note the AAR is a really wonderful forum for a scholarly, serious engagement about this work on a topic that is too often approached with more heat than light. That is not what you will find in these papers you'll hear today. You will hear the raising of substantive questions about this work's religious and philosophical significance. So each presenter will speak for about 10 or so minutes. Uh, Judith Butler will respond and then I will pop back up and we will have a question and answer dialogue with all of you. So thank you, thank you for coming. So I've actually titled mine and it's Butler as Pariah with a question mark. In his introduction to Hannah Arendt's The Jewish Writings, Ron Feldman recalls that Arendt divided those who have Jewish outsider status into two types, the conscious pariah, that is the one who is aware of this, and the parvenu, the one who tries to ape the Gentile world but who can never escape his or her Jewish roots. The essays collected in this volume, Feldman asserts, reveal Arendt's choice to be the conscious pariah. She elevates the conscious pariah to a revered status arguing that it is the conscious pariah who does more for the spiritual dignity of her people. Using Bernard Lazar as her example, Arendt observes that in contrast to his emancipated brethren who accept their pariah status automatically and unconsciously, the emancipated Jew must awake to an awareness of his position and conscious of it become a rebel against this assumed position 
the person must become the champion of an oppressed people. I have been thinking about Hannah Arendt a lot lately, not only because of the chapters in Judith Butler's recent book, Parting Ways, but also because of the 50th anniversary of Arendt's book on the Eichmann trial, which has inspired a number of conferences, panels, film showings, and discussions to mark the occasion. One cannot help but consider the difference in approach and reception to her, as in Arendt's, ideas now 50 years later. The philosopher who wrote about the Jew as pariah and who seemed to fancy herself one now might actually be banal. That is, 50 years later, her ideas, though still brilliant, might not seem as provocative as they did at one time. In light of this, I am wondering if the same frame might be applied to Judith Butler and her book. In the brief time I have, I wish to examine the parallel between Arendt and Butler, and then at the end raise some questions for Professor Butler that remain for me unresolved. Published in Jewish Social Studies in 1944, the essay The Jewish Pariah predates Arendt's published views about the Eichmann trial by more than 15 years. It also predates the formation of the State of Israel by almost five years. Early in the essay, Arendt lays her cards on the table. Those who really did most for the spiritual dignity of their people, who were great enough to transcend the bounds of nationality and to weave the strands of their Jewish genius into the general texture of European life, have been given short shrift and perfunctory recognition. No one fares worse from this process than those bold spirits who tried to make of the emancipation of the Jews that which it really should have been, an admission of Jews as Jews to the ranks of humanity, rather than a permit to ape the Gentiles or an opportunity to play the parvenu, unquote. And it seems clear that Arendt sees herself in the category of the one who has received short shrift, though she might not have anticipated how much more so was to come. Arendt's analysis of the four figures represented by Heine, Lazar, Chaplin, and Kafka draw attention to how each fails, even if each improves on the figure previously described. Lazar's contribution, for example, is to politicize Heine's description of the poet as pariah. What happens when the pariah enters the political arena? He or she becomes a rebel force. Moreover, for Lazar, this move was a responsibility, a demand placed on all Jews, since it is our duty to resist oppression. The Jew as pariah fundamentally links to Arendt's emphatic commitment to think, uh, fundamentally links to Arendt's emphatic commitment to think for oneself. Insofar as the Jew thinks apart from the community, the Jew will be seen as a pariah, but the pariah, as we see above, is the one who calls the Jew to be better and to be better as a Jew. Arendt's response to the Jewish leaders in the camps as portrayed in Eichmann in Jerusalem clearly provoked a response from the majority of the Jewish community that she seemed not to anticipate. But her views had been expressed almost 10 years earlier in essays that were published in Responsibility and Judgment, which did not have as broad an audience as Eichmann did when it was originally published in The New Yorker. My point here, however, is that when I read the Eichmann book, I do not, nor did I ever, find her claims outrageous. They were provocative in the best sense of the term, and they posed difficult questions about ethics and politics and what one does or might do in ethical situations that are simply not captured by the ridiculous thought experiments we see in analytic moral theory, the trolley example, for example, which still circulates today. When I watched the recent film on RN, I was struck by something in particular at the end, and here is where I wish to draw the parallel to Judith Butler and the position she has taken in, in parting ways. 
When Arendt was called to defend herself, she had several options, including not offering any response. But she chose to double down and offer an even more spirited defense than the original position she took. Although Arendt's Jewish colleagues were unable to hear what she had to say, her students could. And I would argue that while her being a woman helped provoke the vitriol that was spewed at her in the, fear, in the first place, I would also argue that it was as a woman who defended herself that won her students' admiration all the more. Might it be the case that Arendt cannot be heard by a particular group of Jews, by a generation of people, because they are too close to the events? Might it be the case that the students can hear her because they are more distant personally? That is where Arendt's students see her as the conscious pariah. I believe her colleagues see her as the parvenu, as having betrayed the Jewish people. I wonder if something similar is true of Professor Butler, yet the difference might be that where Arendt seems perpetually, per perpetually perplexed by the response to her, Professor Butler might have employed this strategy intentionally or maybe was simply less surprised by the response. And it is on this point that I express my concern. Like most marginalized people, and for a variety of overdetermined reasons, the Jews are unable to occupy simultaneously both victim and perpetrator status. It must be one or the other. We, and I use this we loosely, cannot reconcile, for example, Africans who held slaves or sold them into slavery. With, that, with their status as slaves. We cannot reconcile Jews who cooperated in the camps with their status as victims during the Holocaust. And we cannot reconcile Jews in Israel as both victims of past anti-Semitism and even current aggression from groups in the Middle East with their own aggressive actions. That is, I've been wondering lately about what it means to publicly criticize. And with regard to Arendt, I wondered if she could not see, she could not anticipate that the backlash might have less to do with the truth of her claim than that the Jewish community intuited the danger of such a claim made in The New Yorker in a book published by a trade press in a classroom outside of the privacy of their living room. Would this claim undermine what it means to have been a victim not only of anti-Semitism but also of a machine that intended to annihilate the Jews, remove them permanently from the world? Arendt closes her discussion of Lazar with this observation. However bitterly they may have attacked him, it was not the hostility of the Jewish nabobs that ruined Lazar. It was the fact that when he tried to stop the pariah from being a shlemiel, when he sought to give him a political significance, he encountered only the schnorr. And once the pariah became a schnorr, he is nothing worth, not, not, he, is, he is nothing worth, he has no worth, not because he is poor and begs, but because he begs from those whom he ought to fight, and because he apprises his poverty by the standards of those who have caused it. And then he, she goes on later, Indeed, it is just by this system of organized charity and alms, given that the parvenus of the Jewish people have contrived to secure control over, to determine its destinies and set its standards. The parvenu who fears lest he, lest he become a pariah, and the pariah who aspires to become a parvenu are brothers under the skin and appropriately aware of their kinship. When I read accounts, and then that's the end of the quote, when I read at the accounts of friends and colleagues, both Jews and non-Jews in the academic community regarding Israel, the black-white either-or frame becomes apparent once again. Israelis, often conflated and read here as Jews, are bad, Palestinians are good. And all of this is read as perpetrator and victim. There is no blurred line, there is no gray area. You must be one or the other. I wonder if that thinking, that concern, that led to the response to Arendt, 
that her inability to anticipate the complexity of the problem led her to being viewed not as the pariah, but as the parvenu, the one who sells out the Jew in favor of being part of the larger Gentile community. The critique functions to separate Arendt from the Jewish community, effectively making her a Gentile. It is as if to say, I am not one of them, I am one of you. I wonder and worry that something similar is happening with the response to Israel that I hear circulating. That is similar to Arendt's critique. This is not to say that her criticism does not stand. Rather, it is to say, what are the politics of such a critique? In, in Professor Butler's call for the Jews to be better, to act more ethically toward the other, is there not also a danger that what she says will be taken up precisely by those whom we should be fighting? What might Professor Butler's critique open the Jews up to from those who actively intend the destruction of the Jews? If it is the case that given the antisemitism that does in fact still persist, might it also be the case that this particular approach allows whatever kind of nation state to form to be fundamentally contaminated by that antisemitism? I wish to end then by posing a series of questions, and so I'm just going to read them off. Does Professor Butler put too much faith, if you will, in these anti-imperial movements? I'm thinking of the current failures of the Arab Spring movement, especially with regard to women, and I, want, and I worry that the way we have framed this particular political issue obfuscates or distracts us from what may be happening or needs to happen within these groups. Who is the intended audience for Professor Butler's book, and what does she hope to happen politically as a result of having written it? In a 1954 essay, Assimilation, called Assimilation, Emmanuel Levinas argues that assimilation did not put an end to anti-Semitism, but actually stirred up the violent feelings towards the Jews, which might create a different paradox than Jewish, Jewish exceptionalism. But I'd like to hear more from Professor Butler about the paradox of Jewish exceptionalism. I admire her attempt to acknowledge it and to try to bracket it, but I'm not sure I'm persuaded it works. I would also raise a question about the one-sidedness of responsibility, and in this case, also blame. On the one hand, it is a Levinasian move to claim only I am responsible for the other and not claim the responsibility in return. But to stay within the Levinasian frame, we need to acknowledge that by referring to nations and peoples, we are now at the level of the political, that is, we've moved off of the ethical, where the relationship between ethics and politics is messy and unclear. But significantly, totality and infinity raises the issue of the third. I would argue precisely because by not having a third to whom the other can be said to be responsible, removes subjectivity from the other. I worry that something similar has happened here by placing responsibility and blame squarely on what appears to me squarely on the shoulders of the Israelis, and again, to conflate this, the Jews. Indeed, I would argue that Levinas does this in response to the master-slave dialectic in Hegel, where only one side attains self-consciousness and moves forward. Similarly, if the other does not have someone to whom he or she can be said to be responsible, then the other, at least within the Levinasian frame, lacks subjectivity, which is derived through the ethical claim. But Levinas needs to avoid the trap of reciprocity and symmetry. The third provides this. But, but the third also complicates the matter, since the political is far more complex than the ethical. The third to whom the other is responsible is also a third to whom I am responsible. There is no avoiding this point. But the concern I have is that staying in the ethical, which I am not sure is quite right in any event, 
Professor Butler runs the risk of removing subjectivity from the Palestinians in a situation where one could argue fairly confidently that both parties need to assume blame and responsibility without needing to figure out how much and to whom. And so I want to say here that I think it's also this question of what it means to leave them out of assigning this kind of responsibility and subjectivity. And so my last question or point, how might the tension and the complexity of the political and political judgment play out in this particular disagreement about what ought to be done. That is, Justice Butler following Arendt could be said to be thinking and thinking for herself, given the challenges with which Israel-Palestine confronts us. How do we move through the impasse that we all must exercise our own individual political judgment? Thank you. Rabbi Velvel Soloveitchik once heard a member of the Nuture Karta curse the state of Israel. He responded, that man is a Zionist. In Parting Ways, Judith Butler criticizes Martin Buber for assuming, quote, the discrete homogeneity of the Jewish people as well as the Palestinian, thus ratifying Ashkenazi hegemony and refusing the diasporic character of both peoples, finally failing, quote, to fully criticize the settler colonial project. Although Butler's critique of Buber seems at first to be tangential to her larger project, I find it more significant than the few pages and footnotes to which it is relegated. Despite the fact that he is occasionally deployed by Jews who seek to carve out dissenting positions on the Israel-Palestine conflict, and intermittently demonized by those who see him and his Hebrew University colleagues as the sinister forefathers of contemporary post-Zionism, the truth is that Buber is an idiosyncratic figure who has no clear contemporary heirs. He cannot be claimed by liberal Zionists because he is too radical, but he cannot be comfortably claimed by anti-Zionists either. This status, I argue, makes him an important potential interlocutor for Butler, one with whom she could have held a much more fruitful conversation than the cursory treatment in Parting Ways. This paper seeks to model such a conversation, or at least to clear some of the ground to make it possible, by raising two main questions. First, to what extent are Butler's criticisms of Buber fair? And second, what is the relationship between these criticisms and Butler's overall project? Is it possible that Buber's Zionism grounds a critique of the present form of the Israeli polity, as well as a vision for an alternative, that Butler's diasporism is unable to see? That Buber's project failed is obvious. I put failed in quotes. A verdict of history appeared to be handed down on it at the moment of the establishment of the State of Israel. But Butler's critique, from her post-identitarian, diasporous left perspective, goes far beyond the usual platitudes that Buber's proposals were impractical because there were no Arabs to talk to, etc., etc. She sees fundamental flaws in his thinking about Jews and Arabs in Palestine, which presumably render him unavailable or unattractive to her as a resource for future projects of decolonization and cohabitation. She does give Buber credit for his commitment to federation, to cooperative economic ventures, and to a just solution of the refugee crisis, including the return of land seized in 1948. But these do not earn him the benefit of a reading against the grain of the kind she gives Levinas and Arendt in order to render them useful for her purposes. 
I lack space in the format of a conference paper to fully engage all the local readings that underlie Butler's ultimate judgment. So I will choose one example that is directly related to what Butler considers Buber's, quote, most consequential blindness, namely that, quote, he could not see the impossibility of trying to cultivate certain ideals of cooperation on, on conditions established by settler colonialism, end quote. Butler accuses Buber of supporting something called concentrative colonialism, deluding himself into the notion that colonization could be somehow humane. This criticism seems strange to me since Buber consistently, if not always as loudly or bravely and publicly as one would have liked, opposed, one, the forging of a political alliance between the Zionist movement and the British Empire, two, the acquisition of land in any manner, whether conquest or purchase, that would cause indigenous dispossession. Three, any economic policy tending to entrench Jewish privilege, whether the segregationist policy of Jewish-only labor or the plantation-style employment of Arabs by Jews at low wages. Four, the idea that the telos of Jewish immigration to Palestine was the achievement of a numerical majority suitable to form the government of an ethnically-based nation-state. What then is left of concentrative colonialism? He was pilloried for all of these positions in the Zionist press. Butler correctly notes that Buber's, quote, version of Zionism has become so anathematic in light of contemporary framings of Zionism that it now reads as post-Zionist or simply anti-Zionist. And this is something that Buber's biographer Hans Kohn already saw in 1929 when he wrote to his subject that he had captured his, quote, Zionist creed that most people will no longer regard as Zionist. That was already in 1929. Butler refers to the contemporary condition of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, whose freedom of movement is heavily regulated and restricted, in order to draw a line to the horrible outcome and consequences of the concentrative colonialism Buber supported. Yet if one examines the essay that Professor Butler cites, we encounter a Buber who condemns the Zionist movement of his time for, quote, acting within the scheme of Western colonial policies, which has only two parties, the one engaged in colonization and the one that suffers it. It becomes clear that Buber was applying the word concentrate to himself and the Zionists and not to the Palestinians. It refers to the potential role of a Jewish population concentrated in the land of Israel within a wider Arab and Near Eastern Federated policy. The elision here creates the impression that Buber thought nothing of calling for a policy of imprisonment against another population, when in fact he was suggesting that if Zionist settlement followed his recommended course rather than the one that it was on, it might be able to avoid the expansionist tendencies of colonialism. Indeed, one major purpose of the binationalist program was the hope of avoiding population transfer of any kind, whether sudden or steady, which would be meant to secure the demographic advantage of an ethnic group within the narrow borders of each ethnostate. The fact that Buber was able to speak of colonization neutrally, I think, is simply a result of the words connotations at that time to refer to immigration and settlement. If the piece had been written after the development of the mid-century critiques of colonialism, he would have drawn a distinction between immigration and settlement and colonization instead of between expansive versus concentrative colonialism. 
I think that similar corrective readings are possible in order to address the claims that Buber held to a cultural holism or that he, quote, incorporated a neo-Lockean rationale for land appropriation into his thought, installing an aggressive nationalism at the heart of his notion of cooperation. Now, it is true that even with my corrective, Buber does not privilege diaspora, or what Butler calls scattering, as the exclusive resource from which principles of cohabitation and political justice can be derived. Part of his imaginary does involve concentrating collective effort because he imagines Judaism as a theopolitical project, and he imagines that this project will require manifestation in space in order to be worked upon and to be visible. This does not mean, however, that any other who happens to occupy the space beforehand may be dealt with, uh, excluded, expelled, dispossessed. On the contrary, the presence of the other in the space, and there would be an other in any space, uh, not only in Palestine, demands to be taken into account and reckoned with when one is attempting to form a community building project. It demands to be recognized and encountered, but not subsumed in any thinking about the possibility of the realization of the project. If that means slowing down the project to a, a seemingly glacial pace in order to accommodate rejection, in order to avoid taking aggressive steps or acting without listening, then so be it. That is part of the challenge. Imagining what it would have taken for such a Zionism to be realized, that is, a migration, an immigration or settlement seeking not sovereignty nor economic privilege, but uh, living and working with the indigenous population to form unheard of new polities, I think is potentially at least as fruitful, even in criticism, for contemporary struggles for justice, including the struggle against the continuing dispossession and occupation of Palestinians, as thinking that is exclusively diasporic. Such imagining is in fact in line with what many contemporary activists, I would argue, seeking to think beyond the deadlock of one state versus two state solutions, are already doing when they focus directly on processes and practices of decolonization. Butler's emphasis on the fact that certain ideals of cooperation cannot be realized under conditions of settler colonialism raises the question whether there are other ideals that can be. If not, this seems like a council of despair for contemporary efforts at decolonization, which must surely begin under conditions of settler colonialism, since that is what we have, and which must surely take cooperative forms. The fact that Buber himself may not have always been attuned to all the ways in which settler colonial processes might have been advanced through practices that were invisible to him, or which he considered innocent, is challenging. But it is no more challenging than the xenophobia of Levinas, with which Butler proves more than capable of working fruitfully. There is one remaining worry that Butler expresses in her book that I think is relevant here. This is the worry that the articulation of a successful Jewish critique of state violence runs, quote, the risk of making even the resistance to Zionism into a Jewish value, and so asserting indirectly the exceptional ethical resources of Jewishness. Such an assertion would present Jewishness as, quote, a privileged cultural resource. That move must be refused as it runs counter to fundamental democratic values, Butler argues. This departure from Jewishness, quote, as an exclusionary framework for thinking both ethics and politics, stands in clear tension with the first goal of parting ways, namely the presentation of just such a Jewish ethical critique. The struggle with this tension stamps parting ways and gives it much of its character. 
What I want to suggest is that Buber could perhaps offer Butler some help with this worry, in particular with the claim that even a Jewish critique of Zionism plays into a, quote, Zionist effect that, quote, extends Jewish hegemony for thinking about the region and thus contributes to the further entrenchment of colonialism. Butler's worry seems related to a certain apologetic cast to her argument. From its early defensive framing that it is, quote, surely not anti-Jewish to criticize Israel, to her later worry that, quote, if such principles are derived from Jewish sources, others, who, I want to know, might conclude that they are Jewish values originally, fundamentally, even finally. These others seem to me to be a mirror image of those who claim that it is anti-Semitic to critique the form of the Israeli polity. Instead of demanding that one adhere to a specific line on the meaning and definition of Jewishness, thus preempting and silencing criticism of Professor Butler and others uh, who share her sympathies, these imagined critics either assume in a triumphalist way that only Jewish sources can support a critical politics, or they cast suspicion on critical reasoning with Jewish sources, as though any recourse to such sources that turns its attention to Palestine repeats the Zionist gesture of exclusivity. I am not sure that either of these groups of accusers is worth responding to. We could rephrase Butler's worry as a form of prefigurative politics. If one seeks a future polity in which all of the people of the region live, work, and think together about their principles and practices, then one ought not to attempt to achieve that polity through an exclusivist discourse. Now, it seems to me that one cannot ask a Jewish theologian to think from resources of Christianity or Islam, although what, what exactly that means is complicated, though it is fair to expect a certain degree of thinking with them. Buber's thinking on political cohabitation involves out of a long engagement with the Bible as a source of claims about Jewish election and covenant. He is unburdened, perhaps even too unburdened, with the need to demonstrate the bona fides of his thinking in the Jewish tradition. In my view, this frees his thought to ground even harsher critiques of figures like David Ben-Gurion than those that are made by ostensibly objective outsiders. Butler perceives the simultaneously Jewish-slash-non-Jewish character of her argument as a strength, democratically responsible and rooted in philosophic developments of the later 20th century to which Buber did not have access. But too often, it seems to me, that this tension actually stems from her apologetics, which is directed simultaneously at conflicting sources and therefore results in an entanglement. Without re resurrecting the strong metaphysical belief in presence that seems to have sustained Buber's ontology, or the Herderian faith in discrete national identities that appears to many to have informed his binationalism, although I would actually contest this as well, it is still possible to show, using Buber as an example, that it is incorrect to maintain that an argument grounded in Jewish sources is necessarily exclusionary or anti-democratic. In fact, if we accept the existence of the Zionist effect, then one could argue, as Rabbi Velvel Soloveitchik did in my epigraph, that simply by dedicating an entire book to the relationship between Jewishness and Zionism, Butler herself has performed a, quote, Zionist act, which her recourse to Said and Darwish does not mitigate. If so, it is a Zionist act that perhaps only Martin Buber can help her justify. Thank you. Jewishness and the Critique of Zionism. It is a subtitle that conveys the content of the book without giving away the mystery of the how. What exactly is Jewishness? How is Jewishness connected to Judaism or Judaisms? What does it mean to detach the two? And how are Jewishness and Judaism connected to a critique of Zionism? If these were mere academic reflections, 
they would be important enough and worthy of serious discussion. Judith Butler's parting ways, however, is much more than that. It is a work of political theory that is a crucial intervention in the contested discourse about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In my understanding, one of Butler's main aims is to envisage a new identity beyond the Jew-Palestinian. This reconception will transcend the nationalities and will result in a community. I'm not sure state is the right word here. So a community grounded on shared Palestinian and Jewish experience of homelessness and dispossession. How are we to reach this situation or how it will look like in everyday political life is only hinted. In fact, at some points in parting ways, Butler implies that she is portraying an impossibility, a goal to which we should constantly aspire even though it can never be reached. I've tried my best to understand or to imagine this vision. I readily admit that I failed and that I take the blame for the fail. Maybe I just don't get the argument. Maybe my faculty of imagination is not strong enough. Maybe it is my Israeli Zionist upbringing. Maybe. Yet I believe the problem is more theoretical in nature. There is a tension between the radical reformation of identity and the preservation of difference. Are we not erasing Jewish and Palestinian difference in the process? Or if so, how do we maintain them? And what about Judaism as a religion? Where does this fit in this new configuration? So this is where I'm confused, basically. I do not know how to solve the tension between difference and new identity. Of course, uh, this is a problem of identity generally, that it is always fluid. But I think that uh, the idea of Jewishness contributes to my confusion. There was a great panel yesterday about uh, Jewishness and radical, radical concepts and Jewish identity. So I suggest that for the purpose of a critique of Zionism, uh, we might benefit from living Jewishness and Judaism intertwined. More specifically, I mean using Jewish theological concepts in a critical discourse on Zionism. I suspect that Butler would disagree with the attempt to connect her project with explicit theological language. In fact, she takes great care to differentiate between Jewishness and Judaism, and she prefers to discuss Jewishness, which in her ideal understanding is universalistic, inclusive, anti-essential. It is also true that uh, the concept of Jewishness, might, we might think about it as an empirical fact. That means that there are many Jews who are not observant and identify themselves as Jews. I wonder, however, if we are not too quick to theoretically separate Judaism and Jewishness. What are we losing in doing so? What we might lose is this evasive thing called religious tradition. Tradition is perhaps one way to maintain and describe difference. It does not in and of itself justify anything on a moral level. But tradition can serve as a resource, if only under certain conditions. As Butler writes in Parting Ways, and I quote, to be effective, a tradition must be able to depart from the particular historical circumstances of its legitimation and prove applicability to new occasions of time and space. I agree with it, and the task of my talk is to examine if Jewish religious tradition can help us think in a productive way about the problem of Jews and the state. In order to do so, I suggest we confront directly two major concepts. The first one is chosenness, or the election of Israel, and the second one is Zion. The chosen people. I already see some people moving slightly uncomfortable in their seats, and I slightly move uncomfortably as I say it. Uh, but indeed, the notion of election is a source of embarrassment for all critically oriented thinkers. But herself rejects claims for Jewish chosenness, and we should to substitute what she calls the claim of exceptionalism with more fundamental democratic values. We would rather ignore or dismiss the idea of election, if only it was that easy. Election is a red thread that runs through Jewish thought 
from the biblical times to the rabbinic period, the mystical writings, and up to contemporary writings. As Franz Rosenzweig noted in his essay, Apologetic Thinking, the idea of chosenness is almost a dogma in Judaism. It is a self-evident, non-articulated prerequest of Jewish thought and life. Any attempt to deal with the question of Judaism and Jewishness from the perspective of Jewish thought therefore needs to come to terms with this idea. And if we can't do away with it, we might as well reinterpret it. A good place to start, I agree with Sam, is by turning to Martin Buber. When discussing the election of Israel, Buber brings from the prophet Amos two verses that seem to contradict each other. So on the one hand, only you I have known from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your inequities. So this is the choosing of Israel. On the other hand, are you not like the sons of Cush to me, the sons of Israel? Did I not bring Israel up from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Armenians from Kir? So on the one hand, Israel is like every other nation. On the other hand, they are chosen. Buber tries to make sense of these two verses by claiming that they show how Israel is elected only insofar as Israel fulfills its election. Part of the fulfillment of this idea is, of course, the obligation toward the other, which we heard in Levinas. So the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. When we combine the idea of election as conditioned upon the fulfillment of the law with the law's function in fostering moral obligation toward the other, election emerges as a regulative idea, one that secures ethical conduct. Elections become a never-ending obligation and a religious duty. So if you have Herman Cohen in your head, it's intentional. In this sense, the people of Israel are elected only insofar that they maintain their ethical responsibility, only insofar they consider themselves to be a group with an ethical purpose. This can supplement Butler's idea that Jewishness includes a radical exposure to the other while still maintaining this central concept of election. The problem is that Butler anticipates and rejects this kind of reasoning. She notes that if the critique of Zionism emerges only from within Jewish thought, it extends in a way what she calls the Zionist effect. So it still fosters some kind of hegemonical discourse. Maybe another way to frame the problem is by pointing out that the notion of election entails within it a sense of moral superiority. If one is elected to a duty, then she can claim higher moral grounds. Election can thus lead to dangerous chauvinism. This is definitely a risk and one that needs to be recognized and confronted. Yet I'm not entirely sure how this is different from taking any other contested moral position. When acting for a cause in the political realm, we form community based on a sense that we are working for a just cause that is better than the present situation. In a way, to use yet another problematic term, it is perhaps what Spivak called strategic essentialism. We do not assume an a priori essence of Judaism, but we find ad hoc common ground. If this common ground is election, and if election is conditioned upon ethical conduct, then maybe we can start rethinking election in a useful manner, maybe. So far for election. Another case for Jewish theological critique of Zionism, as different from a critique based on Jewishness, can be made using the concept of Zion. This might sound surprising in our context because Butler's position is anti-Zionist, so why do I bring Zion into the picture? But there is a tension here, I agree with Sam, uh, between Butler's own demand that we imagine the place that is not yet, this new something, and the anti-Zionist position. I wonder why Zionism and Zionist thought are not given the same chance to be imagined anew, for example, with Buber, and why limits are set to our thinking in this regard. It is worth noting in this context that Butler's rejection of Zionism is in a very curious way an inversion of a Zionist argument. 
certain strands of Zionism tried to completely negate the diasporic experience, the so-called Shlilat Agalut, the negation of the exile. In a similar way, Butler negates the Zionist experience in favor of the Galut, in favor of the diasporic and the exile. Instead of Shlilat Agalut, we now have Shlilat Zion. The question remains, what are we supposed to do with the religious concept of Zionism, or of Zion? Zion has, of course, been appropriated and in many ways secularized by Zionism. A productive theological approach to a critique of Zionism would be to reclaim Zion and embed it with old or old new meanings. It is important to do so because, like election, Zion is central in Jewish theology and liturgy. So you can think about the psalmist weeping on the rivers of Babylon, and it is apparent in the many, many Jewish daily prayer books. So if you want to discuss the context between Zion and the religious aspect of liturgy, of everyday practice, then it is important to reinterpret Zion. Such approach has precedence in manifestations of Jewish ultra-Orthodox theology. I'm thinking of the Satmer, where the founding of the Jewish state in what is considered to be the Holy Land is relegated to the end of time, to the Messiah in an infinite deferral. It is also evident in 19th century reformed German Hebrew prayer books, which emphasize Zion as a spiritual idea of, idea of companionship. So one example is the translations made by Abraham Geiger in 1854 and 1870 to the blessing Or Hadash, New Light. The original blessing, or the original prayer, is about a new light that shines over Zion and we all rejoice in it. Geiger leaves the Hebrew, it's a bilingual uh, prayer book, so he leaves the Hebrew original, but in the German he paraphrases as follows. So let the light of the Spirit, the sun of truth and salvation, rise over all of us, so we rejoice it in clarity and intimacy. Note that the word Zion does not even appear in the German. Yet at the same time, it is still an interpretation of a spiritual Zion. And it shows the potential of working with Jewish liturgy or from within Jewish liturgy in a critique of Zion as a land. Election and Zion are just two examples of central themes or terms for this kind of project. Another one following the panel on Levinas and Messianism would be, of course, Messianism. I suggest that in order to formulate an effective critique of Zionism, one venue to be explored is Jewish theology. We need to revisit major themes in Judaism and radically reconceptualize them without, however, abandoning them completely. Such a task is different from Butler's and, in fact, might stand opposed to some of her basic presuppositions. At the same time, it can be seen as an addendum, one that exposes the possibility of critique not based on Jewishness or not only of Jewishness, but based on the Jewish religion. In this sense, it will be a critique of, of Zionism out of the sources of Judaism. Thank you. Thank you. And my comments come under the title on dispossession and departure. I here read Professor Butler's parting ways within a key problematic she considers in her more recent book of dialogues with Athena Athanasiou on dispossession, the performative in the political. They critically examine there the connection between two modes of dispossession. One of these is to be abhorred and resisted. Butler writes, dispossession is, quote, what happens when populations lose their land, their citizenship, their means of livelihood, and become subject to military and legal violence, close quote. It is what is now ongoing in the Nakba catastrophe of Palestinians' colonial subjugation and expulsion. 
It's the site of, quoting Butler again, violent dispossession, surveillance, and the ultimate control by the Israeli state over Palestinian rights to mobility, land, and political self-determination. Achille Mbembe has termed the contemporary colonial subjugation of Palestine to be, quote, the most accomplished form of necropower, a power of global sovereignty that determines whose lives are disposable and then implements that disposability. Throughout Parting Ways, Professor Butler marks her own critique with value-laden terms like utterly wretched, pernicious, perverse, and backs those claims not just with moral condemnation, but with non-dualistic logics of responsibility. While there are differences on this panel and surely within our guilds of the AAR and the SBL, I for one would like to see us work through with other guild organizations to some endorsement of the boycott, divestment and sanctions statements and movement initiated by Palestinians uh, themselves. But there's another sense of dispossession out of which a response to the first grows. Butler writes in Dispossession that it, quote, marks the limits of self-sufficiency and establishes us as relational and interdependent beings. This refers generally to the different ways one is solicited out of oneself to be the relational subject, to be dispossessed as one responsible to others' dispossession in the first sense. Parting Ways seeks a Jewishness sufficiently dispossessed of itself for generating critique of that dispossession of Palestinians. And, but Butler finds here a theoretical conundrum, as our speaker has already noted, in that such dispossessing and critical Jewishness can seem to claim an exceptionalist status to be a different Jewishness. This is maybe desirable, but it's also troubling because it risks representing the very exceptionalism working at the heart of Israel's Zionism. Butler finds a way forward through the conundrum by critically interrogating and welding insights from a variety of Jewish thinkers who enable her to express her own dispossession as a departure from subtle exceptionalism, better Jewishness, as well as from the Zionist exceptionalism congealing as regime of colonial subjugation. Her accomplishments seem to me noteworthy and exemplary exemplary of what departure looks like when a dispossessing scholar thinks amid cohabitation of different peoples who are often in agonistic relation. In that fact, for thinkers of a tradition and traditions who move from its ethics into that ethics politics, departure for Butler becomes a trait of traditions themselves. Quote, the departure from the tradition, she writes, is a precondition of any tradition yielding strong political principles, close quote. In all, though the, in all this, though, I would point to her own rigor of argument as showing what is possible, this is not merely the impossible, as she says, for the dispossessing scholar facing colonizing dispossession anywhere. To call it impossible risks something like what both Butler and Athanasio name in their joint book, a tendency to freeze critique, maybe in a certain being always already dispossessed, even perhaps to, quote, legitimize an abdication of political responsibility. Butler certainly commits no such abdication, but my worry is that discourses of the impossible, except maybe in the dreams and daring of the materially dispossessed, come perilously close to such a legitimization, or at least, least leave unchallenged the states of inertia, neglectful of doing even the possible. Now, I'm perhaps driven to make these points because as a Christian thinker, I know all too well the posture that takes as impossible the kind of departure from traditions that would be analogous in Christian thinking to Butler's search in parting ways for Jewishness as a critique of Zionism. 
Christianness as critique of Zionism is also necessary. And again, I would emphasize that it is not so much impossible as it is often routinely neglected and refused. This departure by Christian thinkers is just as important, if not more so, for those of us who, like me, publicly inhabit the category of religion named Christianity, which, as Butler herself notes, provides, quote, the cultural preconditions of the public. Christianity, especially in its Protestant formation, shapes public life in dominative ways, even when it is presented as secular. With Christianity circulating in powerful ways in European and U.S. publics, Christian thinkers' necessary task entails a twofold critique. First, there's a necessary critique of anti-Semitism in all of its modes, from historical origins to the present, from subtle discrimination to the horrific violations of pogroms and the Shoah. But a second critique focuses especially today on U.S. global sovereignty and its dependence on a kind of Christian Zionism or even upon various secular policies that leave unquestioned the various narrative modes by which Christian Zionism continues to flourish. Even liberal Christian congregations in the U.S., many eschewing Christian Zionism and the political traits of the Christian right leave intact a narrative understanding of Christian supersession of Judaism that is crucial to the religious narrative, which, as Mbembe noted, is partially constitutive of the subjugation of Palestinians, a subjugation that is, again, not just Israeli Zionist, but also imperialist, neocolonial, amid the geopolitical maintenance of sovereignty an imperial formation that Edward Said once named the Pax Americana Israelica. Both of these tasks of Christian critique will require of the Christian thinker a dispossession of subject, manifest in departure from Christian traditions, and even from some claimed emancipatory Christianity, from any better Christianness, if there is such. But departure to where? Not to Christianity's orthodoxies, its canons or ecclesial councils, or any one of several doctrinal systems. Instead, as thinker, I have tended to focus on analyzing different historical and current interpretations of the figure Jesus of Nazareth. Interpretations of Jesus of Nazareth and historical complexifying of these remind that Jesus of Nazareth was both Jew and also Palestinian. Moreover, the death of crucifixion he suffered was one reserved to the rebel, the revolutionary, the bandit, or eccentric who was inconvenient, if not in open rebellion to imperial sovereignty. The Jewish-Palestinian figure did not just die. He suffered arrest, capture, interrogation, torture, and an imperial execution, an ignominious end resulting from a life lived not with perfection but with a certain integrity of prophetic justice and love. As one Palestinian Christian liberation theologian put it, Naim Stefan Atik, for Palestinians living the Nakba catastrophe of colonial subjugation, quote, Jesus is the paradigm of faith and life. He was born and lived under occupation and was killed by occupation forces, close quote. Similar statements have been made by Christians Mitri Raheb, Jean Zaru, and the Palestinian Christian leaders who have signed the Kairos document, A Moment of Truth. In most reigning U.S. Christianities, the death of Jesus in European and U.S. traditions has been signified less as a body tortured and disposed of, with many others of, under conditions of imperial execution, and more as center of an abstracted salvific event glossing imperial execution and its conditions, grounding a religious drama instead played out above the realms of earthly catastrophe. 
and alas, many U.S. church trips to the Holy Land travel while still steeped in these very abstractions. In closing, I want to ask what might prompt an alternative imaginary of Jesus of Nazareth, and here come in a response to Butler's final chapter. The question is, what might prompt or who might provoke Christian scholarly departure, indeed any Christian's departure, as another phase of that subject's dispossession? And my response comes by way of a reading of Levinas, but through the Latin American philosopher of liberation, Enrique Duso. This leads me to accent elements of the poem for Edward Said written by Mahmoud Darwish in a slightly different way than does Butler's discussion of the poem at end of book. What for Dizel might prompt Levinas to extend the sense of obligation to those others who remain faceless to him, the Palestinians, as Butler argues in her book, or faceless to Christians of those on all sides? It is not merely a rigorous and more intense enactment of the subject-other encounter as Levinas constructs it. Instead, Dusso insists in his ethics that such an extension will come as the prompting of the other victims as a plurality, as a kind of we. Thus, if an other interpolates the subject, binding her or him, dispossessing her or him, for Dussel, this is because the other is in community with other others who have already interpolated themselves affectively and politically as a community of victims, affirming their life and dignity in the face of being negated. And so interpolating themselves, they then interpolate the still others, those within the prevailing system who, being hailed by victims, now face their obligation to the victims from whose victimization they usually live parasitically and begin to explore the full complexity of the neocolonial relation. The other of Levinas becomes with Tissel the we others. We are existing. Nosotros estamos siendo as resistant reality in social movements. In this sense, Tissel might especially gravitate to a line not quoted by Butler from the Darwish poem. It's at the heart of a stanza from which she does quote, though, drawing on the poem's comments about identity. Quote, identity is self-invention. I am multiple. Or, quote, the outside world is exile, exile is the world inside, and what are you between the two? In the center of that same stanza, there's the voice's firm reminder, quote, I belong to the question of the victim, close quote. If following Dussel, we keep this reference to the question of the victim linked with the multiple and with the between, we could hear a kind of demand carried by social movements of the subjugated, we others, warning, perhaps even threatening, haunting as collective specter, the colonial orders of the dispossessors, perhaps especially those of us here in this nation. But in this we forces collective movements, I also point to something I sense missing toward the close of Butler's parting ways. Is it too harsh, too quick a judgment on my part to sense in the final chapter of Parting Ways that we're left with a brilliantly turned alchemy mixing the aesthetic power of poetic form with the sense of the impossible? I say alchemy because there's an impressive and inspiring performance of the aesthetic, but without foregrounding the chemistry of popular kinesis, of social movements, of popular organizing. Where are these social practices and movements? I cannot help asking when I finished the book. True, the people are not completely absent from these closing pages, but they're largely people constituted by language, 
a plurality onto which identity opens at the point where the poem is, close quote. Indeed, we know Professor Butler, a writer and thinker with us today as one who situates herself at cost among peoples, organizations, and movements. But here in this text, it's difficult not only to see specific organizations, but also to know how to theorize them. I'm fairly sure Butler would uh, agree that there need to be some commit connection between aesthetic form and movement practices. In fact, I find that beautifully expressed by her, this dialectic of aesthetic form and social movement practice, at the end of a key chapter in her Frames of War book, where she writes, quote, the poems from Guantanamo's imprisoned communicate another sense of solidarity, of interconnected lives that carry on each other's work, suffer each other's tears, and form networks that pose an incendiary risk not only to national security, but to the form of global sovereignty championed by the U.S. The poems, she continues, clearly have political consequences. Their writing and their dissemination are critical acts of resistance, insurgent interpretations, incendiary acts, end quote. And here we may think of the lawyers for the prisoners who pressed relentlessly to publish the poems against U.S. Department of Defense objections, publishers who took risks, students and activists across the land who read and made the, public, the poems public. Amid the neo-colonial subjugation of our time, amid U.S. global sovereignty, amid the Pax Americana Israelica, and other systemic distortions and degradations of our age on any side, these movements press us, yes, to tarry with the impossible, but perhaps also to press through movements for the possible. Thank you. What I want to do in the brief time allotted to me is to make one single claim about the nature of the argument of parting ways and then raise one single question about the limits of that argument if Professor Butler recognizes her book in my description of it. So let me start with the first part of my remarks, the claim about the kind of argument that parting ways is. Parting ways presents itself as an attempt to articulate Jewishness in terms of a relation to alterity, a relation which both grounds and interrupts Jewish identity. As Professor Butler writes in her introduction, is this a Jewish notion? Yes and no. This claim about the nature of Jewish identity is what authorizes her detachment from Zionism at the same time that it authorizes her attachment to a diasporic notion of Jewishness or Judaism. To the extent that the opening paragraphs of the introduction to Parting Ways announce the book as an intervention into the equation of Judaism or Jewishness with Zionism, it is perhaps surprising to the reader that Zionism goes unmentioned for large chunks of the book, particularly in the second through fourth chapters treating Emmanuel Levinas and Walter Benjamin, although the ends of the third and fourth chapters do briefly address contemporary political matters. After the first chapter, which endorses a challenge to identity politics common to the work of Edward Said, which endorses a challenge to identity politics, a challenge common to the work of Edward Said and parts of the Levinasian corpus, and in effect amplifies Said's call to Jews to remember the exilic ground of their identity, figured in the person of the Egyptian Jew Moses. Professor Butler offers us three chapters in which he argues A 
that Levinas's thought, especially his argument about substitution as acknowledging the other in me, demonstrates that there is no ground of meaning found in the self and the self alone. B, that this is echoed in Benjamin's claim and critique of violence, that there is something sacred in life that transcends naturalist accounts, and thus also, quote, allied with the anarchistic, unquote. And C, that Benjamin's account of the messianic also serves to interrupt and question the apparent clarity of any and all conceptual thinking. These three claims we are to understand somehow set up the masterful detachment of Judaism and Zionism that occurs in chapter 5. But why Levinas and Benjamin? Why does the articulation of Butler's political position require pages of grappling with two Jewish philosophers, one, Levinas, whom Professor Butler explicitly reads in a heterodox manner, I would prefer to think with Levinas against Levinas, she writes, and another, Benjamin, whose work she herself suggests is more suggestive and elliptical than one might imagine would be ideal for a book that seeks to justify an account of Jewishness as anti-identitarian. What are these philosophical pages doing in this book? I want to suggest that over and above the concrete political claims that Professor Butler makes in parting ways, there is also an argument here about what Jewish philosophy is. Those readers who, for whatever reason, have focused on or gotten angry at or fallen in love with the politics of the book may have missed something about what Jewish philosophy is, what it can do, and what perhaps it cannot do. That argument, it seems to me, is that Jewish philosophy is a discourse of disidentification. In Professor Butler's brief treatment of disidentification in the chapter of her 1993 book, Bodies That Matter, that takes up the work of Slavoj Žižek, she wrote the following, quote, If essentialism is an effort to preclude the possibility of a future for the signifier, then the task is surely to make the signifier into a site for a set of rearticulations that cannot be predicted or controlled, and to provide for a future in which constituencies will form that have not yet had a site for such an articulation or which are not prior to the sighting of such a site. This anti-essentialist move, which invokes not the inability for a concept, the case in Bodies That Matter is that of women, not the inability for a concept to have meaning, but rather a sense of concepts to have multiple contested meanings coming up against each other in something that is not unlike the Bacchanalian revel described in the opening of Hegel's Phenomenology. This is explicitly linked in these pages with the stance of politicizing disidentification. This is part and parcel of the brief claim in the introduction to that book that the persistence of disidentification is crucial to the rearticulation of democratic contestation. So this term disidentification has its locus classicus in Michel Pichu's language, semantics, and ideology, where it is distinguished from both identification with dominant discourses, as well as a counter-identification which turns against the universal subject by wholly separating itself from it. In disidentification, however, one finds a subjective transformation of discourse in which ideological formations are overthrown and rearranged. 
The queer theorist Jose Estepan Munoz, in his work Disidentifications, describes the work of the disidentifying agent as follows, quote, like a melancholic subject holding on to a lost object, a disidentifying subject works to hold on to this object and invest it with new life. Insofar as the aim of parting ways is to show that Judaism or Jewishness is something that can be taken up in an anti-identitarian fashion, it is a book that makes Judaism and Jewishness figures of disidentification because the subject position is being taken up at the same time that the very subject position being taken up is one that threatens and contests the subject who is taking up the position. The disidentifying subject is always outside her own identity, working within ideological processes to unhook concepts from their sedimented reference and open up a future in which they can take on new meanings for new audiences. Levinas and Benjamin, therefore, are not simply other disidentifying figures, it seems to me. They are themselves proof that Judaism or Jewishness can be linked with disidentification because Judaism and Jewishness have been linked with disidentification in the past in their work. Because Levinas in various Talmudic readings links Judaism with the inability to arrive at an ontological resolution of the I or, or the we, Levinas and Judaism are figures of disidentification, taking up identities that cannot be taken up. Because Benjamin affirms the messianic and the divine as interrupting natural identity formations, he too is a site of disidentification. This is not simply about these two figures, by the way, it seems to me. There are earlier figures in the Jewish philosophical canon who argue similarly. Hermann Cohen argued for an anti-communitarian notion of Judaism and religion of reason, in which the fullness of the people of Israel is to be produced over, over history through their contestation of the limits of all communities, including the community of Judaism. Moses Mendelssohn argued in Jerusalem that the meaning of Judaism lay in the contestation between different accounts of Judaism's significance held by a teacher and a student. Benedictus de Spinoza, as Nancy Levine has so beautifully shown, argued in the theological political treatise that the Hebrew prophets transcend human nature insofar as they supply a community with images that motivate people to act virtuously toward one another. Spinoza thus implicitly takes relationality as key to Jewish identity, and Spinoza is clear that this kind of relationality is not part of Christianity. I do not mean to fall into a re-essentializing of Judaism as disidentification. Rather, I just want to point out that it is Jewish philosophy, a discourse which stretches from a single community to the whole of humanity and back again, a discourse which affirms the particular only insofar as it is for the universal, a discourse which affirms the universal only insofar as it is for the particular, a discourse structured by the simultaneous desire of Jews for emancipation, for the status of the universal subject, and the inability in the history of the modern West for Jews to fulfill that desire, always remaining particular. I want to say that it is the pairing of Jewish and philosophy that allows this work of disidentification to occur. 
If philosophy is that which allows the concept Jewish to come to clarity, then it is not simply the case, after reading Professor Butler's accounts of Levinas and Benjamin, that Jewish is something that stands apart from political Zionism. Rather, Butler ends up arguing that political Zionism is something that stands apart from any and all Jewish identities once Jewish philosophy has done its work. So that is my account of the structure of Parting Ways. Taking up Jewish philosophers as sites of disidentification, Professor Butler implies that Judaism and Jewishness themselves must be sites of disidentification, that one cannot be Jewish without giving up Judaism and or Jewishness at the same time. And likewise, one cannot give up those identities without also taking them up. What Bodies That Matter did for the word women Parting ways does for the word Jewish. Now, I love this argument. I love it because it clarifies for me what I do in my own academic work. A bit more selfishly, even than that sentence, <laughs> I think it allows me to argue to colleagues and deans at my own institution and others that they should take directions in Jewish studies hiring that give Jewish philosophy its due. And yet, there's one question that remains, I think. Why should one affirm the authority of the Jewish philosopher? Why should one disidentify? Certainly, one can disidentify. Parting ways has shown this. But when one reads about these examples, not only Levinas and Benjamin, but also Hannah Arendt and Primo Levi, of Jewish thinkers who suggest that, quote, to be, in scare quotes, a Jew is to be departing from oneself, one can imagine a reader who will ask about the force of this suggestion. Was it simply biography or historical context that led these figures to link the exilic and Jewish identity? Professor Butler rightly affirms that the exilic and the Jewish are not analytically linked. Rather, they become linked over time, and large swaths of the contemporary world, especially the world of Jewish political and cultural authorities, have forgotten this. But why should they remember it? Why should they care about Jewish philosophers? What is the ground of Jewish philosophy's power to oblige others? One of Professor Butler's answers to this question seems to come in the final sentences of Parting Ways, in which she, with the aid of the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish, supplies a beautiful image of an alliance between exiles, whether Jews, Arabs, or Palestinians. I do wonder whether that aesthetic answer is the only answer Professor Butler offers in the book. It seems to me to be surprisingly utopian, a move not of disidentification, but of counter-identification vis-a-vis the dominant discourse today about the relationship between Judaism and Zionism. Perhaps there is another answer that appears at the end of her second chapter on Arendt. And that answer would go something like that a life that does not take the possibility of contestation as essential to what it means to be human is a life lived in false consciousness. But if that is also an answer, then I hesitate to see how Butler's dream, unleashed by unhooking Judaism or Jewishness from Zionism, is any more powerful than the dream unleashed by the Zionist idea. 
Near the close of Eichmann in Jerusalem, Arendt wrote that if genocide is an actual possibility of the future, then no people on earth, least of all, of course, the Jewish people in Israel or elsewhere, can feel reasonably sure of its continued existence without the help and the protection of international law. So on the one hand, that sentence is about the debt that any particular people owes the universal, about how the Jewish is predicated upon the non-Jewish, as Professor Butler argues in this chapter on Arendt, in, 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 in the chapters on Arendt in Parting Ways. But it is also about the way in which the protection offered by the universal in Arendt's mind enacts and verifies itself in a particular people's feeling reasonably sure of its continued existence. The Jewish is about the exilic, but it is also about home. This is what allows it to be a site of disidentification, what allows it to be a site of contestation. And this means, I suspect, that all dreams of alliances, whether between exiles and other exiles, or between exiles and autochthons, will eventually be dashed against the shore, and that it is Jewish philosophy that will someday show why the collapse of all of those dreams was necessary. I hope, and perhaps I even pray, that Professor Butler will show me why my suspicion is false. For even though I know that I should not dream, I still do and I would like not to feel guilty for it. Thank you. Um, well, thank you enormously. Um, I want to um, thank you for your for engaging the work, and I want to thank um, Ellen Armour, who once again made it possible for me to attend um, the AAR, um, and thank you, Rebecca Alpert, as well, for moderating. Let's hope moderation is um, observed uh, without your intervention. Um, I, I want to respond directly and indirectly to some of the issues raised by the respondents. Um, but perhaps also to offer a set of thoughts that may show where my thinking has gone more recently, since indeed some of the questions posed to me resemble some of the ones that I've posed to myself. Uh, it has been a tumultuous time, and it has not been one that I've been prepared for. Um, but one doesn't cease to think um, in historical situations for which one is unprepared. Sometimes one has to think precisely in the midst of that for which one is not prepared. So I think Claire, Claire Katz, suggests that maybe perhaps I, I really knew what the response would be to publishing my political views in this form. But I think she overestimates my canniness and my strategy. I've been, you know, shocked and upended. Okay, I could not have, I could not have predicted. Um, and, and maybe that's a kind of conceit because I thought my tone was so terribly reasonable that people would match it. Uh, but that was just wrong. Um, um, I, there's a couple of re remarks that I made in a question and answer period many years ago that people now take as the basis for my affiliation with terrorist organizations. Um, you know, if so, I would be the first Jewish lesbian feminist ever to become a card-carrying member of some of those organizations. <laughs> Um, my support for BDS has been upsetting to some people, and I understand that. 
Um, so the book, Parting Ways, it seems almost to come as a kind of afterthought, like, oh yeah, was there a book, and what did she say? Um, there have been some excellent readers, but sometimes people comb through the book looking for the political position or refuse to comb through it at all, thinking they know what the political position is. Um, and I wonder whether the so-called political position, if there is one, can be wrenched from the actual readings and the engagements with all those texts. Um, so I'm grateful that each of you decided to engage the work as you did, and I'm grateful for your disagreements as well. It seems like something other than yelling and screaming is happening here, and that's wondrous and precious. So I do thank you. Um, I wanted briefly to say, yes, Martin Buber deserves a fuller hearing, you know, punto final. And to say as well that I now have two papers on Martin Buber written in the last year, one that pursues the idea of binationalism in a comparison of Buber and Said, uh, and the other seeks to understand in what sense Buber was a Zionist within the framework of Zionism that lasted to some degree post-1948 in a revised form until it was rather fully vanquished in 1967. So there's a question of what's the, what's the forgotten history of Zionism that Buber uh, represents for us now, and, and perhaps that's one reason why it's so hard to locate him um, in one position or another, because positions are now formed in a way that make him relatively unthinkable or unclassifiable. I think it's interesting that the debates that Magnus and Buber and Arendt had about federated authority were Zionist debates at the time. Those were debates that were part of Zionist discourse, but they would be considered anti-Zionist or minimally post-Zionist today. The reason, I think, is that the principle of Jewish sovereignty has come to be identified with Zionism, um, uh, Jewish political sovereignty, even though that was not always the case. There were Zionist efforts to think about shared sovereignty in Palestine, and they deserve not only to be mentioned, um, but really to be studied, since they do constitute what we might call the forgotten history of, of Zionism, or the, 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 the prehistory or post-history of, of Zionism. Um, I also just want to say that the distinction upon which I sometimes draw between Judaism and Jewishness is not meant to establish myself or my position um, as belonging to Jewishness and not Judaism. Uh, my view is that um, religious uh, formations and religious practice, religious belief and institution tend to continue in secular ones. Um, that's the argument that I've made in, uh, in the book is critique secular. And um, it's not always possible to make radical and firm distinctions between Judaism as religion and Jewishness as, say, cultural identity or contingent historical formation. I think this brings us to a larger question about how we take account of secular Jewish formations. I'm not quite prepared to do that right now, but I want simply to say that I understand myself to be drawing on certain religious and theological concepts in this book in order to imagine a form of ethics and politics, which I do put together, that would counter the idea of political Zionism as it has become established for us, that is, as a continuation of settler colonialism, whose state structure is organized on principles of Jewish sovereignty and demographic advantage, and that has implied structurally and historically expulsion, occupation, and disenfranchisement of Palestinian inhabitants in ways that I find unjust. Um, and among those 
theological and religious views, and I also probably have some things to say about the difference between the theological and the religious, I would include transient life, um, the idea of the messianic, which I explore in Benjamin and in a way that is counter to some of the um, received ideas in Sholem, um, mourning practices, the Kaddish, and the commandment. Okay, so all four of those. I mean, and there are, I think, more. Um, I even think that Arendt, despite her emphatically secular self uh, proclamations, um, also in her idea of unchosen uh, cohabitation is within the orbit of the commandment, <laughs> um, and that there is a kind of interesting um, theological resonance there. And Susanna Gottlieb has, in fact, written some extremely interesting things on the uh, the way um, that uh, that Arendt contests her own her own secular claims. Um, okay, um, in the in the part of the book that's on sacred life and Benjamin, I I do think a little bit about transience, not simply as something to be lamented or overcome, but as a as a way, as an occasion of becoming attuned to injurability and even the struggle for survival. And I think this has informed my views since precarious life, if not before. Um, Parting Ways continues that ethical wager that transience is a form of dispossession that makes it possible to open to others and to affirm a mode of ethical relationality that is crucial to cohabiting the earth together. And here I guess I would add that this idea of ethical relationality is not really about accusation and guilt. It's not really about assigning blame and accusation and guilt. It's a different idea of ethical relationality, which I hope maybe I can explain in some ways. Um, when we speak about healing the earth or repairing the earth, we're talking about a way of life that is positioned against destruction, trying to make up for past destruction, but also to ward off the possibility of more destruction. So I want to point out that this idea of ethical relationality and the specific sense of dispossession that is implied by it, I suppose that would be the second sense of dispossession articulated by uh, Mark Lewis Taylor, Princeton, not Mark C. Taylor, Columbia. Um, uh, I want to say that that specific sense of dispossession um, that, that is involved in ethical relationality perhaps is not quite the same thing as disidentification. So here, even though I'm enormously um, pleased and intrigued by... Um, by, by Martin Kafka's um, response, I, I think perhaps he works too hard to find the link between bodies that matter and parting ways. Um, after all, I'm a living creature and I change my views and you know, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse, but um, um, I, can't, I can't be read as uh, developing a system in which we can find you know, repeating motifs and which would make me consistent through time. I'm quite sure I'm not and I won't be. And I think I gave that up um, in a spirit of self-acceptance long ago. <laughs> um, if I am in some sense outside myself in a world of others, there's some one sense of dispossession. And, um, and if I am outside myself and I found myself in an earth commonly shared in a situation of unchosen cohabitation, I was not asked whether I wanted to share this earth with certain people. Uh, I, th this is not a matter of consent or contract, right? Um, then who I am is very much a matter of those relations. They sustain me or they do not. 
but I am myself obligated to find a way to sustain those interconnections for myself, for others, indeed for the earth and for other living beings, since we, we are in some sense that tie. And I, I want to kind of use relationality as a, as a kind of ontological term there. We could not be anything without that tie. So this form of dispossession, finding myself ecstatically outside this bounded being that I am, is in fact not exactly a disidentification with myself or certainly not a disidentification with my ethical or religious formation. And of course, as we know, there are ecstatic traditions within um, Judaism, not just um, Hasidism, um, but certainly there as well. Uh, and of course, that interested Buber. <laughs> that interested Buber a great deal um, and appalled Sholem. Okay, but we're not gonna go down that line. Um, Okay, so this form of, um, of dispossession uh, doesn't mean that I break with my ethical or religious formation. I don't deny where I come from or the beliefs and values that orient me in this life. They're the matrix of values out of which I operate, but as I operate, that matrix also is a bit transformed slowly, but perhaps in some significant ways. I affirm that whatever the communitarian basis of my orientation to the world may be, it's open to disruption and even dislocation as I come up against those whose formation is decidedly different from my own. That is an ethical challenge. Indeed, one question that we might ask of any religious and I backslash secular tradition, and I'm holding on to that backslash here, is what religious grounds there are for, in any given religion, for interreligious or intercultural exchange or for thinking cohabitation with those outside of one's religion. And so we can, we can look very clearly in all kinds of religions to find those bases, which doesn't mean that they, we lose that religion as we move toward a certain practice of cohabitation. It does mean that we are ethically obligated to become disoriented or dislocated by certain kinds of encounters, and that's part of what cohabitation means. I, 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 would, I would underscore this as an ethically obligatory disorientation, translation, and reorientation. At such moments of ethically obligatory encounter, we're both inside and outside our formations. We're in the midst of being reformed, and this is what happens when we live in a complex and heterogeneous world, multiracial, multireligious, where we cannot expect that everyone has the same formation as our own. So that's probably a somewhat simplistic view, and I could make it much more complicated for you. But I'm offering it here in that rather simple form, simply to say that it's not a matter of disidentifying with Jewishness. It may well be that precisely by grounding oneself in Jewishness, one opens toward the non-Jewish in a different way. And that what follows is not an identitarian or a communitarian basis, justification, or foundation for an ethical practice, but rather a practice that departs from habitual frameworks, from habitual forms of justification, uh, precisely to know and live with those whose frameworks are decidedly different. In, order, in other words, to encounter that obligatory uh, 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 process of encounter, dislocation, and translation. Um, I also want to say that, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a big question, what, what about Jewish self-determination? You talk about political self-determination for Palestinians. Do you accept that that the Jewish people also have a right to political self-determination. Um, 
And here I want to say two things via Hannah Arendt. Um, um, first of all, um, one of the things she understood in arguing for binationalism and a federated authority is that sovereignty had to be shared. And self-political uh, self-determination can only be good, can only be valid to the extent that it does not imply or institute the destruction of some other group's rights to political self-determination. So that self-determination always has a limit. It finds its limit in the um, reciprocal recognition of the rights of others to political self-recognition, to political self-determination, and the task of a, of, a, of a just polity will be precisely uh, one that will, um, uh, uh, will, will be to recognize um, the equal weight and value of um, those, um, those rights to self-determination. So the self-determination for Jews is good because self-determination is good, because political self-determination is a value and Jews should be able to exercise that value as much as anyone else. But as soon as we say as much as anyone else, we're, we've generalized it, which means that the right to political self-determination is also true of other peoples. And this, of course, becomes complicated when we start to wonder who's a people and whether they're unitary or homogenous in the way that Buber sometimes spoke. Um, but I do think that the self who's involved in political self-determination can be an unwieldy, complex, contested, antagonistic self. In other words, it can be a plurality that is not necessarily bound by, um, by nationalism or by, um, by conformity. Um, I, I also just want to say here, um, well, I guess I'm just going to say one other point about the political end of the book, whether it is political. The point that I found in the final chapter that was most important to me in, at, at a political register that I don't know maybe is or is not separate from aesthetic form, I don't, I don't have big views on that distinction, um, is the idea that Hannah Arendt puts forth that um, you cannot solve one refugee problem by producing another because if you believe that refugees have rights of sanctuary, um, then you cannot produce through giving sanctuary another refugee problem which then uh, produces a new need for sanctuary. You can do it, but you commit, an, you commit a very uh, consequential contradiction when you do it, which is why, although she cared, I think, quite deeply about um, Jews as a refugee class, she made clear that the refugee classes of the 20th century included all kinds of other people, and she was quick to note how many others were also communists, the disabled, um, homosexuals, um, were, um, uh, were rendered stateless by the Nazi regime. Um, and even before the Nazi regime, she was very concerned about um, forms of nationalism that, con that, that concentrated in the nation state and produced um, expulsions of minorities. So, you can't, her, her whole point was precisely to say, yes, uh, Jews demand uh, sanctuary uh, when Jews are refugees. But the reason they demand it is that refugees should have sanctuary, which means that the right and the, the good is more general than the class and has to be generalized. I don't know if I would call it universalized, maybe so. It has to be subject to a universalizing or generalizing claim. 
um, and that without that, it becomes not only identitarian, but par parochial in, I think, um, a, very, um, a very dangerous sense. Um, I, I want to say also, um, um, I don't particularly like, uh, this is just a polemic that I'm just going to add here because I like adding it. Um, I don't like the language made popular by the media or even by organizations such as J Street, um, some of whose positions I, I do appreciate. The language is, assumes that one is either pro-Israel or anti-Israel or pro-Palestinian or anti-Palestinian. So many people I know and admire talk this way, and I'm wondering how it is that this I think unthinking way of approaching the question of cohabitation has become taken for granted. Um, why do we take for granted um, this idea? I believe it has to be looked at again or anew. It's, it's a soccer team rhetoric, Manchester versus Barca or something, pro, anti, contra. Um, and I think it has to give way to something more thoughtful. Although I cannot leave my formation utterly and I do not want to, that is why in writing this book, I wanted to counter those who said to me, I cannot be Jewish anymore because I do not want to identify with the state of Israel. And my response to them was no, that is not the right way to go. Um, one point to be underscored in, re in response to such a claim is that it's not necessar necessary to disidentify with Jewishness, but rather to show that Jewishness can be allied with social and political justice. And that's battling for, struggling for a different alliance of Jewishness. So distinguishing Jewishness from Zionism is not the same as disidentifying from Jewishness unless we already accept the idea that the state, that support for the state of Israel is the same as the affirmation of Jewishness, right? And it's precisely that um, identification that needs to be broken. This would only follow if we continue to believe the discourse of the state of Israel that it alone represents the Jewish people as it reminded us uh, the other day when it objected to the, um, um, uh, the six-month uh, treaty that, um, or agreement that the U.S. has entered into with um, Iran. And still, even within some of these responses, the separation from Israel is understood to be a separation from Jewishness. I don't think that's necessary. Um, um, indeed, what do we make of all the Jewish religious, cultural, and political formations that have never been organized by the state of Israel, including the enormous history and culture of Yiddish, or the Bundists, or the communists, or all those refugees who either chose not to go to Palestine or who found themselves making worlds elsewhere? So let's remember that diaspora is not mere scattering. I talk about scattering in terms of a certain Kabbalistic notion. Diaspora is not mere scattering. It's also, as the Boyarans have taught us, ways of making com Jewish community outside of Zion. And those notions of community are not like little Zions, okay? So there's, a, there's another idea of what it is to make community in the midst of a world that is presumptively non-Jewish or where that contact is a constant ethical and political uh, reality. Um, so I can stop there, although I have many things to say. Um, but I also just prepared a little bit on Boober for you guys. <laughs> what kind of time do we have? We have 55 minutes. Okay, let me just like take some of those, okay? Um, actually, I prepared it before I read you, but here it is. Um, 
So in May of 1948, Buber wrote a rather remarkable essay called Zionism and Zionism, in quotes. Um, it was two weeks after David Ben-Gurion declared the independence of the state of Israel and became its head of state. Scare quotes once again. In this essay, he's distinguishing himself from Ben-Gurion and the political Zionists of the time. And in a manner that I find reminiscent of Said, Buber writes, and here I quote, from the beginning, modern Zionism contained two basic tendencies which were opposed to each other in the most thoroughgoing way, an internal contradiction that reaches to the depths of human existence. He explains that, and I quote again, one can comprehend the two tendencies at the origin as two different interpretations of the concept of national rebirth. The first tendency, he tells us, understands rebirth as requiring the return to and restoration of what is called the true Israel. This would involve a return from exile for the Jewish people. Rebirth, in this view, would be understood as the renewal and unification of the people as they build their common life with one another. This building or formation process is likened to building a home, uh, but also to giving birth, though these remain for the most part metaphors in Buber's text. According to, his first, to the first tendency, then, the point is, is not simply to secure the existence of the nation, but to pursue what he called fulfillment, understood as spiritual reawakening or indeed renewal. The second tendency, the one that Buber will clearly oppose, grasps rebirth as normalization and holds that Jewish spiritual renewal requires, and I quote, a land, a language, and independence, end quote. Renewal, then, conceived as normalization, pursues all these goals as commodities, he writes, assimilating to existing notions of property and the nation state. It's here that Buber's ethical question emerges in the midst of his political problem with Ben-Gurion's declaration of the principle of Jewish sovereignty as the legitimating ground for the state of Israel. He reposes questions that he understands Ben-Gurion to have refused to answer, and I quote, how will people live with each other in this land? What will people say to each other in that language? What will be the connection of their independence with the rest of humanity? He notes that the advocates for normalization are not interested in such questions, and he imagines the riposte of his Zionist opposition in a mocking way. Be normal, a state, and you've already been reborn. As early as 1919, Buber became a leading voice in the Jewish renewal movement, one that objected to the dominance of Talmudic studies and rabbinic law. He distinguished between religion and religiosity, contrasting the former with the ritualistic observance of law with a living, authentic, and creative practice. He was not alone throughout the 1920s as the Jewish renewal movement grew. He turned away from the Talmud, though not entirely, to mine the resources of Hasidic stories, and he developed a notion of living dialogue, which for him was derived from but exceeded the practice of Talmudic disposition, disputation. Excuse me. Renewal was associated with re-education, but also with a renewal of the Jewish people as a people. So in 1925, he was part of a group called Brit Shalom, which was dedicated to, and I quote, absolute political equality of two culturally autonomous peoples. And then later, in 1942, he became part of Ehud, a party whose name translates as Union, which focused on forms of social and cultural union between Jews and Arabs. Ehud opposed the partition plan, 
preferring federated models and joint government. But in May of 48, Ben-Gurion's Yeshuv vanquished Ehud politically. For Buber, this was the beginning of the end of Zionism as he had known it, so the suppression of the first tendency by the second. From the beginning, he was concerned to provide an alternative to nationalist understandings of the Jewish people by turning to an idea of a living commitment to dialogue. In 38, he was forced to leave Germany, emigrated to Palestine, where he took up residence in Jerusalem in that building on Brenner Street. And in the 10 years prior to writing this essay on Zionism and Zionism, he found himself in several conflicts with the orthodoxy on the grounds that his religious writings were heretical, but also with the nationalists, whose views he regarded as dangerous for Zionism. In May of 48, when he wrote this small essay, Buber supports the idea of the rebirth of the Jewish people only three years after the end of the Nazi genocide. But he worries that the project of rebirth has been stolen and renamed by those who have deprived Zionism of its ethical and spiritual meaning. He objects, for instance, to the crude forms of nationalism indulged by his political opponents, which include compulsory forms of assimilation for recent immigrants and settlers from Europe. And at one point in this rather short and angry text, he offers the following reminder to Ben-Gurion and his followers. This land today, I quote, is, is not devoid of inhabitants as it was not in those times in which our nation trod upon it as they burst forth out of the desert. But today, we will not tread upon it as conquerors. Today, we are not obliged to conquer the land for no danger is in store for our spiritual essence or our way of life from the population of the land. He then goes further. Today we are permitted to enter into an alliance with the inhabitants in order to develop the land together and make it a pathfinder in the Near East, a covenant of two independent nations with equal rights, each of whom is its own master in its own society and culture, but both united in the enterprise of developing their common homeland and in the federal management of shared matters, end quote. Finally, when Buber sounds off against the very principles of Jewish sovereignty, the normalizing view of Zionism that he opposes, asks only for um, sovereignty for the Jewish people and fails to accept the importance of two peoples, Jews and Palestinians, on that land. In other words, the Declaration asserts sovereignty at the expense of cohabitation, and Buber finds that unjust. He writes, in contrast to this, his own view of Zionism, the protective tendency makes only one demand, sovereignty. If only we can attain sovereignty, he writes in a sardonic tone, refer referring to the Palestine partition plan that establishes the borders of 1948. The life concept of independence, he writes, was replaced by the administrative concept of sovereignty. I guess one thing that I would also note here is, notice how he uses the word covenant to, to, to describe what the Jewish people's relationship would be to the Palestinian people, right? So there's, a, there's an idea of covenant which, which can provide something like an index for cohabitation as an alternate um, uh, principle to the, the idea of, of state sovereignty and, and Jew Jewish sovereignty in, in particular. Okay, so I'm not going to um, go too much further, um, but I want to suggest that this old and forgotten text is an important one because if you were to take his view now, you'd be considered a post-Zionist. Um, 
you were maybe schooled in Zionism, but you'd forsaken that position, or an anti-Zionist, someone who opposes Zionism altogether. I want to suggest to you that when we engage in debates about Zionism today, we have to ask ourselves, which version of Zionism is at issue among us? If you're asked, are you a Zionist, that usually now means, do you accept the right of Israel to exist? If you say no, sounds like you're in favor of the destruction of the Jewish people. It's, it's, it will not make you popular. If you're Boober, you probably would have replied in 1948 that given that there are two populations on that land, only a form of Zionism that guarantees sovereignty and equality for both populations is legitimate so that the rights of the one people are linked of necessity to the rights of the other. But the question, are you a Zionist, asks only if you accept the principle of Jewish sovereignty, but not whether you sustain a commitment to political forms of cohabitation. So the question, are you a Zionist, is based on a certain forgetfulness, and it even drives the tradition of binational thought further into oblivion. So, um, and it's one reason why I think it's important to go back and read some of these figures in order to, to see how the question, are you a Zionist, got reduced um, in this way. Um, of course, um, um, if you say you're not a Zionist, it seems that you're saying that the state of Israel as it is currently constituted is not legitimate or should be dismantled or destroyed. And of course, that last word, destroyed, is a strong one since if we accept the identification of the state of Israel with the Jewish people, it seems as if you're saying the Jewish people should be destroyed or the temple should be destroyed. Um, but it may be that all one is really saying is that one is in favor of a new conception of the state that would be peacefully and democratically achieved and that would establish and guarantee equal rights for all the inhabitants of the land, one that would not restrict rights of political self-determination or mobility for any particular group and would be committed to cohabitation on the condition that colonial rule comes to an end, that laws no longer discriminate on the basis of race, religion, or ethnicity, and that the rights of the dispossessed are substantially addressed. Indeed, if those are the goals of someone says, who says no to Zionism, it's hard to understand how that affirmation of democratic ideals implies a kind of destruction or is motivated from hatred or even anti-Semitism. And I gather matters get worse if you, and if people say, but don't you see Israel needs to have its own state and defend itself given the prevalence of anti-Semitism um, and the fact that it is threatened with destruction by its neighbors, you, one, one might quietly suggest that living on conditions of political equality might produce greater peace. Um, um, I, I think that um, I, I do want to just say one very, very last thing. Um, Buber is was very often mocked in the writings of Shalom and Benjamin, if you read their um, correspondence. And one of the things they didn't particularly like about him was the idea that there was an immediate and vital relation to God. Um, for Sholem, spiritual truth had to be deciphered and transmitted through Jewish texts. Um, you couldn't have pure immediacy. Um, but I think what they failed to recognize is that Buber spent a lot of time reading Feuerbach, and the idea of mediation actually was extremely important to him. I think it might be the way to make that rejoinder. 
For Feuerbach, as for Buber, the I only knows its world because there is a you who has consciousness of that world. The world is given to me because you are also there as one to whom it is given. The world is never given to me alone, but always in your company. And without you, the world does not give itself. I am worldless without you. And who is this you without whom I would be worldless? Well, the particular you, the human one that you are, is only part of the you to whom I am bound and upon whom my sense of world depends. Since in addition to you over there, there are countless number of yous, and some link between all of you seems to exceed the particular yous that you are. How do we understand that which links all the yous whom I address and by whom I am addressed? What is this relation? How does it relate to the living and exemplary relation among nations to which Buber referred in the 1920s? Is that a human relation or is it divine? Is it a covenant? For Buber, it's a divine link to be sure, but this divine link not only binds together those who already belong to the same religion or already share the same history, rather this divine link links the I to those who happen to inhabit the same world and those for whom that world is also meant, equally meant. We could say that the world is equally given to all humans, but Buber's point is that where there is no equality among humans, there is no world. So if we live under conditions of inequality, we are to that extent worldless or our sense of world is jeopardized. This would mean that the Jewish God for Buber does not appear as a man or as one kind of people, but rather persists in the relations between or among nations. And that would include the Jewish people and all the non-Jewish people of the world. So there's a question about what constitutes a nation, despite his problematic assumption that each people forms a distinct nation. Herder, for sure, I agree. By nationalism does not... Um, um, but by nationalism, in this sense, might actually imply a check on nationalism or even a principle of its undoing if we think about binationalism as focusing on that divine link or that covenant. What seems worth considering, despite the dated and flawed character of Buber's view, was that if Zionism were to signify spiritual renewal or rebirth, it would have to take the political form of a binationalism that would affirm the equality of all people regardless of their religions, even as it recognizes the cultural specificity of each people. That might seem like an odd way to locate God or even an odder way to describe a Jewish ethic. For Buber, it would seem a Jewish ethic has to be Jewish and non-Jewish to be ethical at all. This implies living in proximity with others on a condition of equality and difference. If I cannot live in the world without you, according to Buber, then my, and my life is bound up with yours. Uh, we lose our world when we lose each other. That condition of reciprocal dependency is the very condition of renewing and repairing the world. Thank you very much. So for the many of you, and there are many of you, who are interested in asking a question. Um, we have had many comments and declarative statements. Uh, this time is really for your questions. Uh, there are two microphones on either side. Uh, please come up to them. And I, I would like to suggest that we take a series of questions and then have the panel have an opportunity to respond 
You are the series at the moment, oh, sir. Thank you. Uh, Chris Ross, uh, Wilfrid Laurier University, uh, Ontario, Canada. Um, I wonder uh, whether the invective that has followed the publication of your book, Judith, uh, the, the degree to which you think that might, there might be some displaced sexism there. Uh, I'm thinking in comparison to another prominent Jewish intellectual who's recently not with us, Tony Yurt, who, who made distinctions and was not uncritical uh, as a Jewish person of Zionism and the, the, uh, some of the acts of the Israeli state. As a point of comparison, I know there were criticisms, but it may have had a different tone. Please. Right. Thank you all very much for being um, provocative. Um, this question is for Professor Butler. Uh, today you mentioned how you are a creature in process and how you're looking for a shared world and environment. And when it comes to this idea of reciprocal dependency or sovereignty without um, creating new inequities, I think about the precedent that we already have within humanism of an ontological hierarchy that accepts a great deal of iniquity um, between species or, or life forms. I know you've been working on this, and I'm wondering to what extent is your political, ethical work being informed by new ways of thinking about the human and the non-human? Thanks. First of all, I'm required to say, this is a question for Professor Butler, I'm required to say that A.D. Hogan at Oberlin College says hi. Um, and they wanted me to ask um, about um, the um, BDS movement and the leadership of the BDS movement and how that may relate to um, an ethic that is both Jewish and non-Jewish. Do you want to respond, Judith, to those three um, questions? You know, I'm really glad to respond, but I, I guess I would also like for us to open this up to the panelists because there are certain things that they may want to also add to this mix. And um, uh, if we if we could, I, I know we're trying yes. to do several things at the same time. Um, the invective against me, um, sexism, probably. You know, I don't know. Homophobia. I don't know. I actually felt in Germany some of the invective against me was anti-Semitism, and that as soon as the Jew was positioned as somebody who was not supporting Israel, and Israel was understood as the either support for Israel is the sign that you are not anti-Semitic, right? The Jew who does not support Israel becomes fair game, right? Because you cannot be accused of being anti-Semitic because there's only one. There's only one idea of anti-Semitism, and there's a real clear proof that you are not anti-Semitic, which is the support for the state of Israel. So I actually did feel like some of the vulgar caricatures, which involved um, some uh, doctoring pictures of my eyes and uh, enlarging my nose, I mean, I did feel like that was anti-Semitic, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, what can I say? I don't know. Sure, probably. But I can't be too concerned with that. I think one needs to rejoin at the you know, make a rejoinder at the level of the argument um, and, and try to hold people to argument. I know that sounds very rationalist, but I, I do think that's, that's, that's all I can do. Uh, you know, and maybe, you know, I, I, I try to follow, follow Hannah, but she, uh, I don't know. She, she had more gravitas, and the reason I don't like that film is because she also, had, you know, she 
she was a huge gender challenge, you know. There had never been a woman with that kind of authority before. And she came across in a terrifying way. And I felt like the film made her into this sweet, coquettish, heterosexual. And actually, she, she, was, she delivered a major gender challenge to the history of philosophy. And that was, and that was, um, that was suppressed in that film. Anyway, sorry. Um, um, uh, yes, although I do understand the ontological precedent of the human, I think that once we start adding the idea of earth and world and other living processes, we are actually starting to articulate broader networks of interdependency that take us out of a simple or reductive anthropocentrism. So although sometimes my analysis starts with the human, I try to now um, uh, track those other um, issues and also affirm the idea of, of the human as creaturely. Um, the BDS leadership, I don't know what's meant by that. I'm actually not part of the BDS leadership, even though the New York Times said I was. Uh, I've never been part of the BDS leadership. I, I lent my support to BDS, but I'm not part of the leadership in any sense. Um, I, I do know that there are two, I know a couple of different groups that, that organize within certain areas, like there's a, the group in Ramallah, which is the central group, and I've certainly, I know them all, and I've spoken with them all, and I have ongoing conversations with them. And there's a U.S. group which does have its leadership that does not include me. Um, and there are many groups in different countries, all of which seem to be linked more or less, but some of them have very different um, uh, ideas of, of, of what BDS means and, and how it should be, um, how it should be instituted. So I can't tell you, uh, uh, I can't really tell you very much about that. Uh, since uh, I also mentioned uh, BDS in my remarks, I'll just make one point. Note the context in which I placed my appeal in the context of a collective working through mm. of, of the guild. Uh, as it happens, it's many of my uh, Jewish activist colleagues that have put the question to me about the BDS movement and challenged me to think through uh, what Christian thinking might uh, lead uh, ethically and politically to uh, an affirmation of some such uh, movement. And uh, I both found that uh, instructive and challenging and at the same time uh, an, uh, an exercise that calls me out of, of, uh, of my Christianness, if we want to use that word, to challenge it, to critique it, not only for the legacies of anti-Semitism, but for the modes of support of U.S. global projects of sovereignty. So when I say collective working through, I think there's many levels that we would have to look at that makes BDS discussion one very productive indeed. So I have a question for all of the panelists that ties together part of Sam's paper and Martin's paper, I hope, and I'd like to hear Professor Butler's thoughts on it. Um, it seemed as though politics was categorized under the signifier of sovereignty for a lot of the discussion, um, which I, you know, is 
applicable to a Jewish politics once the state is established, once the state of Israel is established. But the question about the place of Jewish philosophy, I'm curious to hear if there might not be, in some sense, an alternate or at least some kind of subversive form of politics that manifests within the discourse of Jewish philosophy that seems to be suggested in some of the papers and just some of the ideas that are floating around. And I'm just curious if that's if that's a theme that is worthy of exploration, and, or if it's something that I, you know, through make connaissance of some sort, I saw happening, but I'm wrong. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Do you have some thoughts? I will publicize those thoughts. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, Jewish philosophy is subversive in this way, in part because it points out the way in which identity positions are not naturally or obviously justified. Right? So in that way, pointing out the sort of leap that takes from a text to an identity stance, that that leap is across some logical abyss, perhaps. That, I think, is some of the, some of the subversive work that, that Jewish philosophy has done and can do. And I also think that insofar as the Jewish, the, the Jewish philosophical canon is filled with a wide variety of, of, of these kinds of moves that one can use players in the canon against each other to relativize these kinds of p political moves on whatever political stance possible. Right? So, so I, I, I think there are many subversive possibilities there. But those subversive possibilities aren't always in the name of a certain political stance. So, so that's, that's, that's the thing that I would want to back away from. I'll just uh, I'll say the thing that uh, Martin is backing away from. Um, there are a few places in Professor Butler's writings on Benjamin where she refers to an elective affinity or something like that coming close to anarchism, and Martin mentioned it in his paper. Um, and for those who don't know, um, Martin Buber's best friend of about 20 years, from 1900 to 1919, when he was murdered by Freikorps paramilitary troops in the Bavarian Revolution, was an anarchist named Gustav Landauer, who played quite a large role in the um, Bavarian Munich uh, Republic, the Council Republic that lasted about a week. Um, and political anarchism in general was a force in that time, and it's just quite easy to bring yourself to question sovereignty if you are already an anarchist. So there's no, there's no big struggle or mystery there that we have to really ask about or find something rooted in a deep uh, philosophical questioning. Um, there's just anarchism. I think it's fairly direct, and I think it's rather remarkable how underplayed it has been um, in writing about Buber. Um, not that he necessarily embraced everything about Landauer's politics, but I think there's good reasons to assume that he embraced a lot of it. And we know that, for example, 
when there was still a question as to whether Landauer might make it out of Munich uh, alive, Buber was involved in arranging a legal defense fund for him on the assumption that he was going to be charged with treason by the Weimar government. So I would say that's at least significant grounds for thinking in that direction. Um, and so that would be, I think, the question would then be what kind of philosophy uh, maybe goes along with political anarchism. So, so, so what kinds of interesting directions in philosophy might arise from a pre-existing political commitment to anarchism? Um, I just want to say that I think um, that there's an, another, I mean, I think there's an anarchist moment in Benjamin for sure, the notion of the general strike where a particular state regime is delegitimated by the people. The real question there is whether this leads to anarchism as a political philosophy and as a mode of life, or whether it's an anarchist interval that is invariably part of an, uh, a, a, an exercise of popular sovereignty. And one of the things that worries me about contemporary um, political theory that tends to focus on, on Schmidt um, and, the, um, and the idea of state sovereignty is that the idea of popular sovereignty is... Um, is either understood as subsidiary or is is dismissed altogether, but I think it's um, I think it's actually a really important idea not only to think about popular assemblies but also to think about what shared rule might look like, um, which involves uh, accepting the idea of um, divisible sovereignty or um, distributed sovereignty, which tends not to be um, uh, uh, readily. Uh, acknowledged by a number of people who are working on state sovereignty. But I think that the idea of sociability that is so important to anarchists, especially on the left, um, can certainly, certainly has enormous resonance with Buber's um, idea of, of a kind of ethical community or an organic community that um, is, is cooperative in, in nature. I think that's right. The one thing I've noticed is that the left anarchists in Israel, whose work I admire a great deal, very often don't, although they're appreciated uh, by Palestinians, um, and there are some important solidarity actions among left anarchists and Palestinians, especially against the wall and um, in efforts to preserve olive, olive, olive tree groves and the like, and Budras and Bilin. Um, the anarchists want to establish modes of sociability outside of state formation, and many of the Palestinians are trying to figure out what kind of state they might have, so um, if, if at all. So there's a little bit of a tension that those in Allah, those who, who are actually most proximate to one another, have very different ideas of, of um, the value of the state. Uh, it's, it's interesting to track. on now? So I have a question and it's, um, it may be viewed as a naive question, but the way that you ended the comments, one of the things I was thinking about reading the sections on our end, it's not only that there's a problem in creating a nation with the, um, the possibility of refugees, but there almost seems the inevitability of the refugee. And I'm just wondering I don't know whether this is a naive question or just sort of an, 
a question that I did, just needs to be put out there. How does one stop that? That if the well, I mean, I think that this is this is the central question, right? Yeah. And so, and and I'm with you on the optimism. At the same time, that history has shown that people living under equal rights or whatever does not stop the violence. You know, the pogroms were enacted against the Jews. They were not in power. And so I'm just, it's not clear to me that equal, you know, living equally will necessarily start or stop a battle that may be motivated by other reasons or that the refugee will emerge simply out of some other moment because what we've done is homogenized both groups of people. And once they each have their own state, the differences are going to emerge. I mean, the, the narcissism of small differences becomes an issue. So I'm just wondering if you can comment. Like, I just don't, I don't know how to think about that. Um, well, of course, I think that um, Arendt had a somewhat simplistic account of why refugees as a class are produced and reproduced. And she understood it as a function of the nation state. Um, and she understood the nation state to be invariably um, involved in, in, in forms of nationalism that uh, um, would, would purify the, the state of, of, its, of its minorities. Um, and, and so her, her effort was to try to move beyond the nation state. And you know, there are debates. Did she turn to international law? Did she, did she want different kinds of plur plural she wanted a European federation. She wanted a federation in Palestine. She she was a big reader of Madison and the Federalists, uh, wondering whether those those kinds of polities would be better equipped. I don't think she um, she thought very much about the Bantus, Bundestans and other forms of federated authority, which actually entrench um, inequality. And I I think. Today, when we look at refugees, I'm not sure we can say it's the nation state that is at fault. I mean, um, especially when we're thinking about war um, and other other forms of conflict and flows of global capitalism that leave people um, suddenly um, uh, utterly uh, ab abandoned and without work um, and, 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 and forced to migrate uh, for, um, for, for uh, out of dire uh, economic circumstances. So. You know, it is a larger problem. I think the only thing I would say about this problematic, if we're thinking about Zionism, is that the expulsion of of eight hundred to nine hundred thousand Palestinians in nineteen forty eight has now <laughs> moved into it. It has produced five million people in the West Bank and Gaza alone who are without rights of citizenship without full rights of citizenship and without rights of political self-determination, and another several million who are either in refugee camps in Jordan or Lebanon or dispersed around the world, some of whom have, have done much better than others. So we're really now looking at, at several million people who uh, are trying to make a claim um, either on that land or, or, um, or, to, or to a polity there. So that's a very, very specific issue. And it seems to me that, that at some level that refugee question has to be addressed for that conflict to um, become ameliorated. And one major problem we have is that the Palestinian Authority, it's the very first thing, the right of return is the first thing they're willing to give up, which is why we also have a lot of fissures within, within the Palestinian. Uh, 
but you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking it's not just that something happened in '48; it's that it continues to happen, and there are more expulsions, and there, there's land being taken from the Bedouins, and as we speak, and um, you know, so um, I don't think those kinds of practices can be pursued at the same time that one then fears living on conditions of political equality. Um, um, the, be the beginning of equality, the beginning of restitution would be an extraordinary uh, opening to a different way of living, which is not to say that, it, it, that there would be no antagonism and no conflict and no problem there would be, but it would be a different order of conflict and antagonism and probably a preferable one. Other questions? Um, this is maybe also a little bit naive, but I want to ask it anyway to all of you here. I think if one wants to do what I would call political ethics, one can start from two places. And, and I think in your book you start from a very deep ethical perspective and that is almost existentialist. Mm -hmm. And you can go further and further and further and you will end up with a question of justice. Others would have said you could even end up with a kind of a global solidarity, global ethics and so on. But it's kind of from starting from the relationality, going further, entering into a kind of a justice theory which then could be called political ethics. The alternative path would be to start from political theory and start with a not not necessarily a communitarianist ethics, but a, a state-based political ethics, where where either the the political theorists would not, would now say the self-interest is at stake right from the beginning, or a kind of a concept of justice is at stake. So, and you would kind of may be then grounded in, in relationality, but it is really much more situated already in the political sphere. If you take that path to political ethics, the question of transnational relationships or international relationships come, come into play much quicker. And I always thought that in, in the Israel-Palestine conflict, this transnationality or international contextualization plays a much, much, much uh, bigger role than I could find it, at least in, in your book. And I probably would, would say that you need both perspectives, but you have to bring them together. And then all of a sudden, we are also talking about the relationship between the US and Israel and so on. And, and the relationship between Iran and, and Israel and what have you, you know. So the, the whole transnationalism um, theory and question comes in. I think there is kind of the refugee problem that is exactly situated in this in-between because um, the refugees cannot be coined to, to the nation state because obviously they are not being treated justly so they have to migrate or go into exile, but they claim some justice, and that justice is, is a very existential <laughs> claim that they make to have a right 
to exist somewhere in a space. So could you, I mean, I don't exactly know where, where this question leads to, but I do believe that unless in political ethics we, we interrelate the two approaches and be clear about them, where we start, um, we, we might become a little bit re maybe reductive or so. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I appreciate what you say, and, and it's true I'm not trained in political science, and I'm close to people in political science who remind me every day that I'm not in political science, <laughs> but, um, uh, but who love me anyway. Um, but here's my, um, here, here's, here's what I want to say. You know, uh, in, in Eichmann in Jerusalem, when, um, when Hannah Arendt makes her argument against Eichmann and, and, and she speaks to him in this fictive way, um, you thought you could choose with whom to cohabit the earth, um, but you could not. What she's saying is that the obligation to cohabit the earth with those you never chose um, is, um, is an injunction uh, against uh, genocide, right? What genocide is, um, what a genocidal policy is, is thinking you get to choose who lives and who dies on this earth in terms of the population. So who do you want to live with on this earth? You don't get to choose that. It's a choice you cannot make. You can make it. If you make it, you're genocidal. Um, but in fact, we are obligated to live together on this earth, um, not having chosen those with whom we live. Um, and and that, that, um, that way of articulating the, um, the absolute unacceptability of genocide is also an injunction to cohabit the world on the basis of a certain kind of presumed plurality of persons, plurality of groups, plurality of languages, of nations, of different communities um, that are more or less porous and, um, and, and, and internally complex. So I see that as both an ethical moment, like really, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> I mean, a religious moment, an ethical moment, and a political injunction of a certain kind. And I don't know how to fully disarticulate that. I don't know how to fully disarticulate that. So I'm not sure it's existentialist, um, because you know we are articulated through these power relations, and we are articulated in ways that um, um, that have um, that make us a certain kind of sense that don't necessarily derive from natural law, and nor are they necessarily derived from positive law. Um, um, I, I guess you know I'm willing to say that I'm articulating a kind of social ontology that has an ethical relationality at its core. And if people want to dismiss me for that or say I, I would become you know strange, then that's okay. I can live with that. Um, you know, I have some more work to do to make that plausible, but I just, I just think that that and and the question of nonviolence, you know, right? Like having been persecuted or having been attacked, very easy to respond with violence. But what is the injunction not to respond with with violence? How do we think about what Gandhi had to say about that? How do we think about all forms of of nonviolent resistance, even though one has been violently suppressed or attacked or injured? What, what, what is involved in that ethical practice of nonviolence? It strikes me as an ethical practice, and it's also a politics of nonviolence, right? It's something that's articulated in communities and networks and social movements. 
um, I don't think we can have a we can ha we can even understand the social movement of nonviolence in its various forms without seeing the interarticulation of the ethical and the political. I don't know how to disarticulate them there. Well, I, I appreciate um, what you say about the difficulty of retrieving Buber, but perhaps there's a way, and I think um, um, it was um, um, uh, Samuel Brody who said, why, why, can't, why can't I read um, Buber against himself? Um, the way that I tried to do Levinas. Uh, am I correct that it was Samuel? Says, yes. So, um, so you know, I think maybe that is the way to do it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not willing to say, oh, the term colonization or um, concentrative co colonialization, colonization was just a kind of nomenclature at the time and we shouldn't get worked up about it. I mean, the very fact that it was naturalized within language showed how deep the presumption was that it was legitimate. Um, and I think we can, uh, Gabriel Peterberg has actually done some tracing of that term, concentrative, through um, some of the uh, po population scientists in Germany who were uh, particularly interested in, in, in concentrationary methods. Um, so I, I, th I think we have reason to be extremely um, careful in that. I mean, the, the other thing I would add is that, you know, the, the binational, the smaller binational collectives that existed prior to 48 and even after were for the most part uh, put together in order to expand markets, <laughs> you know, hoping that, you know, working together where they could, uh, you know, expand markets throughout the Middle East. And, um, and Saeed talks about that uh, a lot uh, when he talks about his own mixed feelings about the early uh, binationalist ventures. So all of these are, are reasons to be wary. 
but I still think there's there's something important um, in the idea of the covenant um, that that might might actually give us a, a way of of thinking against um, state sovereignty uh, and even possibly against the very colonizing uh, presumptions that that Buber makes. So we could maybe use one one part of him against another. So we have we have five minutes, and I would imagine at this point, if, if we uh, Elliot. Um, could I say something? And Sam, to, please. Yes, respond. in response to the question, um, uh, Gershon Shafir has a, what I think is an excellent book called "Land, Labor, and the Origins of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict." Yes, um, and he talks about how, in the historiography of the most early period of Zionism, there's often this idea that, well, the most innocent form of Zionist immigration was when um, people showed up and bought tracts of land and paid for it, and then settled there on the land that they had bought, and what could be wrong with that? And he points out, well, um, because of the expectations of the Jewish immigrants to a different standard of living, uh, labor conflict was immediately created between them and the indigenous Arab population because of different economic expectations. And this had a snowball effect that leads forward into uh, all kinds of later political and economic consequences. And, and this put me in mind of gentrification. Um, where we see people who think of themselves as perfectly nice, reasonable, uh, liberal people, and they move to a neighborhood, and then, boom, people are displaced, and they think, I didn't do it, um, and they don't accept responsibility for this, and they don't accept that they're part of a large process um, that is causing dispossession and that they enabled that process through their action. Um, I think Uber can be accused of not seeing the way that that economic process worked. And I think he can be accused of uh, insensitivity to those processes. But I don't think that it makes him irrecoverable as a potential resource for thinking precisely because now we're having this conversation. So. Okay. Elliot. Real quick, I guess I'm glad most people left already for this embarrassing question. Uh, but if we're talking about recovering this whole tradition of a sort of more liberatory Zionism, and Jeff Halpert talks about decolonizing Zionism, uh, there's a whole lot of people, American Jews, Jews in Israel, like myself, who, who associate with the Zionis, with Zionism, call themselves Zionists, as a tradition. Zionism as a tradition, most of it's terrible. We agree on all the details. But we can point to other traditions that we might be part of, for example, socialism, which has, I mean, when was socialism ever an innocent project? When was it not imbricated with forms of domination and chauvinism? Uh, socialism is both uh, Stalinism in Sweden and Christianity and every other tradition. So how would you react to uh, this idea that these isms, uh, these projects, are uh, um, a tradition and that there might be a recoverable um, core? I don't know. Maybe someone else wants that question. <laughs> well, since we, since we always spoke on Buber, I mean, Buber has a very short essay called Yes, Life Includes Injustice, <laughs> in which he tries because Arthur Rupin, when he first discovered yes. that, uh, they are, that they are dispossessing the Palestinians, he said, oh no, what we are doing is terrible. This is injustice. We are causing injustice. This was, I think, early 1920, maybe even earlier. And Buber writes an essay later saying, yes, life includes injustice. We should be, we should be able to recognize it. That's the first element. And we should be able to try and minimize it. And 
And this maybe is one way to think about Zionism as tradition or socialism as tradition or any tradition that has violence in it. Other closing thoughts from the panel? I guess I, I guess okay. I would be a little worried about accepting a kind of an ultimate political task as the minimization of an injustice that otherwise cannot change, like if we're talking, say, about the occupation or something like that. In other words, minimizing its deleterious effects. It takes place by infusing NGOs into the area, but it's still an unjust situation, right? There's no, there are no political rights of self-determination. So I guess I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to move in the direction of, yes, there are necessary injustices. All we can do is minimize their, their, the toll they take. I guess maybe this is where I'm, uh, I'm a little bit more uh, absolute. <laughs> because even if um, total justice is not realizable, and I'm more than willing to accept that, it doesn't mean it shouldn't be struggled for. So, you know, I'm in favor of the unri unrealizable, basically. So, last words are thank you incredibly on behalf of the Theology and Religious Reflection section and the Theology of Continental Philosophy section for an incredibly uh, uh, experience filled with light, even though we had to turn the lights down in the room to make it a little bit more bearable temperature-wise. Uh, I understand that the Columbia University Press copies available of uh, Parting Ways are not, but plenty of order forms 